the summer is upon us. Okay, that, I mean, I don't know if that may be horrifying to you parents or not. I don't know. We're, we're really excited. So, so Susan and I, means it's time to fire up the DVR, look at all the shows that we've been saving in order to, to watch. Okay, so, so we love, obviously, Dateline, the real-life mysteries, the FBI's most wanted list. Okay, and in all those, all the, someone's laughing about that, and I don't think it's funny. I think it's a really, you know, that's really right. So, you know, we... You know, all those shows have, have certain similar themes, okay? Somebody does something bad, okay? That's where it starts, right? Somebody does something bad. The FBI, the police are, are, are after them. This person's on the run. They're on the lam. They're hiding out, and then they invariably find this person somewhere, right? And, and you know what's interesting is they're never, like, in a cave eating worms, okay? That's never where they're hiding out. Where are they typically hiding out? Like, right, right here. Like, this could be one of you. Okay, I don't know. America's most wanted. No, they're, they're like living normal lives among normal people. Consider the case of Charles and Karen Gasco. Does that ring a bell? No? Charles and Karen? Santa Monica, California. They're a couple in their early 80s or an elderly couple living a quiet life, whatever elderly couples do. Um, you know, they play bridge. They walk the dog. They eat the blue plate special at 4 p.m. I don't know, Okay. Neighbors said, you know, these were the nicest folks. They just say, hey, and how are you doing? And they had been in the same place for 16 years. But in actuality, Charles, Charles's real name was Whitey, okay? Whitey Bulger, okay? One of the most notorious, notorious criminals in U.S. history. He was an Irish mob boss, boss on the south of Boston. That does sound scary, doesn't it? Okay? Wanted on 19 counts of, of murder. He shared the top billing on the most wanted list with who else? Osama bin Laden, okay? And so he was the most wanted man in America for some 16 years, rewarded $2 million. And finally, they arrested him after someone watched what? America's Most Wanted, right? And it was like, oh, that guy's the guy I play bridge with. Anyway, so they, they arrested him. Now, we have to ask, how does this happen? Okay? How do normal looking but nefariously motivated people sort of seduce everyone around them. How, how does that happen? Well, here's, a, here's a quote from one of the FBI agents who ultimately did the arrest, and here's what he said. He said, sometimes, we're still waiting on the, the quote, but maybe not. I'll just read it. Sometimes it's very simple to deceive when you make yourself to be a very average-looking, average couple together and just kind of sort of blend in with the community. And I think they were able to do that. Just average looking, average couple, just sort of blend in, act like everybody else. You know, in a lot of ways, that's the story, not only of this passage this morning, that's the story of this book. You see, Paul had planted the church in Corinth. It was his baby. And he had laid it all on the line. He was working for free. He was ministering, serving, writing letters, sending disciples and helpers to to minister to that church. He he wrote four letters, and and he he just kind of laid it all on the line for them. But then these super apostles, okay, false apostles, we're going to be hearing more about them today, sort of when Paul left town, they kind of moved in on Paul's scene so to speak. And they came in boasting and braggadocious and 
flash and dash and style and good looking and great speaking skills and a lot of money, and they begin to attack Paul's ministry and credibility. And that's why Paul writes this letter. And it's, it's the clearest autobiographical picture we have of the Apostle Paul in the entire New Testament. And, and it's here that Paul really wants to wake them up and say, hey guys, guys, listen, I know that you're buddy-buddy with these new leaders and these apostles. Um, and, but, but you need to know that these, these guys that you are following are not who you think they are. Okay? They are, they are. These people are not whom they appear to be. And Paul, in this passage, sets out on exposing them but understand, this is not a power struggle on Paul's part. This is, a not, this is not about Paul's ego. This is not about Paul's pride being wounded. No, 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 no. Guys, Paul loves the church. He has a great concern for them. He loves them. And, and here, is the, here is the primary issue that he wants to press forward for them and for us in this text this morning. And here it is. Corinthians who are you listening to? Corinthians, what influences are shaping your lives and your priorities and your decisions and your thinking and your actions? Who is it, Corinthians? Because you're listening to someone. And, and folks, we need to be able to situate ourselves in this passage today. Because a lot of times when we start talking about false teaching and heresy and untruths, those, seem, those things seem so far and so distant and so sort of abstract. We're just, I mean, we're like solid, conservative, evangelical, orthodox, Bible-believing Christians. What can we sort of garnish from this? But it's a relevant question for us too. Four Oaks, who are you listening to? Because we are all, li- all of us are listening to someone or something. There's, there's some sort of influence or authority that, that sort of speaks into all of our lives. And whether it's our teachers or our friends or Rush Limbaugh or CNN. See, I got both sides of it there. Do you see that? Okay. Your coworkers, pop culture, yourself. I don't know. Someone is talking to you. You are taking your cues from someone. But what it means to be a Christian is that we aspire to listen to God, which means tuning in fundamentally and foremost. It's why we do what we do every week, asking God to, to fundamentally shape our lives by his word. And as, we, as we're going to see in this passage, this is not an abstract notion. This is not theoretical Paul's going to say, who you're listening to, who I'm listening to, who we're listening to as a church, is a matter of spiritual life and death. So we're going to talk about deception today, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15. We'll flash it on the screen here if you don't have it. Let's read God's word. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, 
since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let's pray. Lord, this is a a difficult passage. And so we're asking your Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that's to send forth your word this morning with the promise, the guarantee, that it will not return to you null and void. Instead, it will accomplish every good purpose for which you have sent it forth. And so we're praying that you would do that in our midst this morning, that we would walk away, Lord, more in tune to your voice, more in tune to your word, more submitted to having you speak over us, because, Lord, that's not tyranny. That's not slavery, Lord. That is life. That is freedom, found only in the grace of Jesus Christ. So we're praying that you would do that this morning in your name. Amen. Three parts to this sermon. It's going to be fundamentally about this idea of deception. So we're going to talk about deception defined, deception demonstrated in this text where we see deception, and then the dynamics of deception. And that's where we're going to really zero in on what what does this sort of mean for us? How do we locate ourselves in it? But if you look at verse 3, I think this is Paul's central concern in this text for you this morning. Now, I was going to say, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, but that's a lie. I want you to hear it all, okay? But verse 3, here we go. Paul says this, but I am afraid as that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, here it is, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. I think that's Paul's central concern. And when he, that, that, that you and I have a sincere and unpolluted, undefiled devotion to 
Jesus. And, and the words that he uses to describe sort of the antithesis of that are these words, deceived and led astray. Now, when we think about false teaching and being led astray or deceived, a lot of times we think about having wrong thoughts, okay, or, or, or not being theologically accurate, or having something in our thinking that's incorrect or, or, or not in line. And, and, and certainly, that's a part of it, but that's not, doesn't really encompass everything Paul is saying here. These words, deceit and led astray, really mean moral ruin and corruption. Okay? The kind of thinking, the kind of worldview, the kind of misalignment with the truth that, that leads to people making moral bankrupt or shipwreck of their lives. Because we have to understand this, because we, we, we can never think about truth in abstraction. Okay? Truth always has a moral component right in the middle of it. And I was having, I was gonna, I was, I was having an argument with a woman. It wasn't anybody here. It wasn't anybody who's ever been to this church. Okay? I shouldn't say argument. It was a pastoral engagement. Okay? That's what we were having. Okay? And she was telling me all about the fact that she had decided to leave her husband and that this was based upon a new emerging understanding of marriage and divorce as it is taught in the Bible. Okay? Now, on one hand, okay, it was somewhat encouraging that she was trying to engage God's Word to understand these things. Because a lot of times, people make those decisions with no reference to the Word of God whatsoever. But, but according to her, and, and we as, as, as Protestant believers believe that certainly... It is God's design for people to be married, to stay married. He does allow under certain circumstances to protect the innocent spouse um, for divorce, whether it's by marital unfaithfulness or one partner refusing to remain in, 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 in marital covenant and faithfulness and to, to remain married um, to that person and to live in peace. Um, but fundamentally, she, she basically said, you know, I've just come to the place. I really believe God's word um, is just, I, I understand it in a new way. That God would want me to have all of my emotional needs firmly met in this marriage. And I just feel like my husband has really abandoned me emotionally. And, and, and she had all these finely tuned theological arguments and biblical justifications but at the end of the day, Four Oaks, this was not about exegesis. Okay, this was not about hermeneutics. This was not needing another class in systematic theology on divorce and remarriage. This was about the will. This was about the heart. Because as Woody Allen infamously said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And oftentimes the human mind, the human will, the broken person as we're just, we're magicians at this. We're magicians at twisting and contorting and shaving and convoluting the Word of God or what we know to be true just to fit exactly what we want to do. See, guys, this stuff is not academic. Truth and error and deception always have at its center this moral component. 
Okay? And that's why it's no coincidence, look in verse 2, why Paul uses this metaphor. It's, to be honest, it's a, it's a, it's a sexual metaphor. Okay? It's, it's a metaphor of engagement in betrothal. Okay? So, so look at verse 2. Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, the background for what Paul's saying here in, 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 in Judaism is that engagement was kind of a big deal. Like culturally for us, engagement is not always a big deal, right? So, so historically, you have long courtships or dating time, you get to know someone, and then what, what's the purpose of engagement? What are you supposed to do during an engagement? Plan a wedding, right? Get, as, get married as fast as humanly possible, right? Okay? That is not how we treat engagement now, right? Engagement now is oftentimes, okay, simply a period where you live together in order to figure out whether you really want to be married or not, right? And so, and so but that is not the context here for Paul. Guys, in, in Judaism, it was a big deal to be engaged. In fact, you could not break off an engagement um, except by divorce. It was that, it was that serious. And it was the father's job to maintain and protect the purity of his daughters. Dads, can you imagine? Okay. Not an antiquated notion, okay? And, 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 and here the image is literally, okay? We chuckle at this, but guys, this is, this is so, so good. Because, because Paul is going to compare himself to their father. You know, the father's job is to literally stand guard at the door, okay? To, to protect his daughter's purity at all costs. To keep anyone away from taking advantage of her. And also, if needed, giving just a little friendly, fatherly wisdom, okay? So that she would not do something that she would later regret, okay? Now, now I'm, from, I'm from Tennessee, you know this, okay? So we are very familiar in the Tennessee Hills with the term, and you may be familiar with it too, shotgun wedding. So what is a shotgun wedding? Exactly what it sounds like, okay? Like, here's a daughter whose trust has been violated, and here is a father with the shotgun, okay, forcing the man to marry his daughter, right? Okay, so that's not what Paul's doing here, by the way, because oftentimes what motivated shotgun weddings was not a desire to protect the wife or the daughter. It was about reputation, okay? It was about the image, the optics, all those sorts of things. Paul's like, I don't care about any of that. I'm just here, Corinthians, because I love you, and I'm trying to uphold your purity, and I'm willing to lay it all on the line because... I desire more than anything else to see God's truth manifest in your life. And he says simply this, and parents, don't, don't you resonate with this? He says, Here, Corinthians, let me tell you, here's what I want for you. And folks, I just really pray that God would ignite your heart for this for your spouse, for your children, for the people in your fellowship group. Paul, Paul says, here, here is what I want. Go back to verse 3. Okay. I want, I, I, I want you to, to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, that, that imagery is kind of interesting. It's, 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 it's the image of a single piece of cloth, okay, without tear, 
without blemish. It's not folded over. It's not rumpled up like a handkerchief and stuffed in your back pocket, okay, and gone through the washer a few times. This is a pure, spotless cloth that is unsoiled, okay? And and here's kind of what this is like. So um, even though you assume that I'm very cool, I'm not hipster at all, okay? The most hipster thing I've got going right now are my glasses, which my wife picked out, okay? So thank you very much, okay? And, 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 but when you, when you get glasses like this, you have to accessorize, right? Okay, do you, men, do we understand what this means? Okay, probably not. Anyway, so, so I have to, I've got one of these cloths, okay, that I use to wipe my glasses. Everybody with this? Oh, that is a hipster cloth, right? Okay, and, and, and so I'll take these off, and by the way, I can't see one thing right now, okay? My vision is 1,500 over 20 without lenses. This is actually not a bad way to preach. Okay, we'll, we'll try it next time. And, and, and so sometimes I'll get the cloth and I'll wipe my glasses, but if the cloth is dirty and it's soiled and it's like been in my back pocket and gone through the wash a hundred times and all those sorts of things, then, then I end, end up distorting the image and getting smudges and all that stuff over it, and my vision ends up being worse than when I started, okay? Guys, that's what spiritual deception is like. It it blinds us. It clouds our vision and our thinking. And that leads to us further blinding ourselves. It's kind of this reciprocal process. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And it was just happening right before their very eyes. The, 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 the people who should have been loving and caring for them the most were the people who were the closest to them, these super apostles who were devouring who were savaging, who were leading them astray. And there was a real spiritual consequence to this. Folks, me, I know, I know we're a church that loves the word. I know we're a church that loves the truth. But let me, let, let me just exhort us to excel even more. Okay, this stuff is life and death. This is our spiritual lives. And Paul says, I'm jealous to protect it. Okay, so what was happening specifically, where were they being clouded or deceived okay, in the way that they were navigating the situation? Okay, second point, deception demonstrated. Okay, look at verse 5. Paul gives us a clue here. He says, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And, and, and the super apostles, that's a word that Paul makes up. It's basically like, the so-called apostles, okay? The, the, I mean, this is kind of his na-na-na-na sort of to them, okay? He said, they're, they're, not, they're not super apostles. In fact, they're, they're fake apostles. If you look down in verse 13, what does he call them? False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of, of Christ, what is our cultural equivalent? If we're trying to, if we're trying to like locate ourselves in here, what, who, who would be the super apostles in our day and age? Okay? If, you go on, if you go online, that's your first mistake, but if you do that, okay? Second mistake, Google People Magazine's t- top ten list of most beautiful people. Okay? That's mistake number two. I did this. I had to take a shower afterwards. Okay? But 
you see the long list of people who've, who've made the number one on that list. You know, all the names that you know, Sandra Bullock and Tom Cruise and Matthew McConaughey and Julia Roberts. And, and these are not just the beautiful people, though. Okay, we, we, we idolize them because they're very public and they do well in front of a camera and they're eloquent as long as they're not as long as they're acting and not talking about politics, okay? So they're, you know, we, they're, 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 they're the beautiful folks. And guys, that was the equivalent of Greek philosophers in this time, okay? They were idolized, okay? People were enamored with them. Everybody had to have their resident, their teacher in residence, right? And, and there was such a value on the dramatic and the public, you had to be good-looking and optics were, were huge. I mean, because these folks were, like, were, were the apple, right, <laughs> of the ancient world. You know, it, for, for them, I was trying to think of a, of a, of a, of a comparison. You know, the, the teacher in resident, residence for the Greeks was sort of our equivalent of what kind of car we drive. Do you know what I'm saying by that? Okay. It's, they, they were kind of a possession. And so, so I hadn't even looked out there, so I don't even know if it's true. If, if there's a Range Rover out in the parking lot, if it's yours, God bless you. Okay, that's awesome. Okay, use it for the kingdom. All right, but but there, that, that that would be the Greek philosopher. My man wagon, my minivan, that's the Apostle Paul. Okay, that, that that's essentially what we're talking about. Okay, and and see, because Apostle Paul was just not a lot to look at. Okay, he was unimpressive physically. He's pretty smart. Certainly, but church history tells us that Paul was short, and if he was up here, you'd pat him on the head, and he was bald and had a hooked nose and bad eyesight and a hunched over back, and we have all sorts of clues in his letters about these sorts of things. And so even in 2 Corinthians 5.12, it tells us that his outward appearance was nothing to look at. Paul even begrudgingly admits here, look in verse 6, he says, yeah, I guess you could kind of say I'm unskilled in my in my speaking, okay, Paul, Paul, Paul did not measure up. And Paul did something else very strange for that time. Paul worked for free, okay? And as a church, you might say, well, that's just a wonderful idea. I think it's a terrible idea. But nonetheless, okay, Paul worked for free. Guys, and, and, and understand, this was a particular point of shame for the church in Corinth. Because how much you could pay your teacher was a sign of status, just like your car, right? How much you paid your teacher was a sign of status. And, and, and see, they, they were concerned not for Paul, okay? They would say, but Paul, how's it going to make us look if people know that our teacher in residence works for pro bono? Come on. That's going to reflect on us. To be quite honest, they were just, they're just very embarrassed of Paul, Right? He's, he's, you know, parents, he's the, he's the guy. It's like, pull around to the side of the school dad so we don't, people don't have to see your minivan. You know, no autobiographical, you know, reference intended there whatsoever, right? That's Paul. See, Paul was embarrassing. Paul was weak. Paul, Paul, Paul did not measure up. And see, you know, just a sidebar, and this is, this is a point just for a little bit of teaching, just for a second. It's not the main point of this passage. See, the issue was not whether ministry church workers should be paid or not. Okay, that, what, that's not the issue here. Because it clearly says in the text, look there, Paul was paid by whom? 
other churches in Macedonia, the church of Philippi. Remember their partnership in the gospel. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 6 and 2 Timothy 5. But he didn't hear. He didn't hear. We have to ask why. I think, guys, this was the supreme demonstration of Paul's love to them. Because look what he says in verse 12. He says, and what am I doing? In what I am doing, I will continue to do, in other words, to work for free. In order, okay, because to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He's saying, look, these, these super apostles, they're in it for the buck. They are ready just to milk you all the way down. They don't care for you at all. They weren't here with the gospel to begin with. They won't be there at the end. And just to show you that my love for you is pure and sincere, the thing they demand from you, they want to extract from you, I don't want any of it. That's love. I'm going to undermine them in their motivation. I'm going to expose it. Because I have the most important thing. Look in verse, verses 6 and 10. Paul has the two most important things. What does he say? He says, I'm not unskilled. He goes, I am, I'm not so in knowledge. In other words, I've got God's truth. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me. See, because there is a spiritual transaction that occurs in our heart when God's word no longer sets the agenda and shapes the priorities of our life. Guys, this is serious business. Okay? Paul, Paul is not playing around here. And he makes the outcome of, of what they're doing also clear in verse 4. And this is what he says. He says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, because you put up with it readily enough. Because when we have an agenda setter in our life, when we have a cacophony of voices in our life, in preponderance to that of the Word of God and His truth. Paul St. Mark makes it really clear. We are worshiping, he says, a different Christ altogether, in a different spirit, with a different gospel. Because we, we live in a culture that is spiritual but not religious by self-identification, which basically means I want to worship a God that I think is most palpable to me, that makes the most sense for me, and that meets my felt needs in the way I think they need to be felt. And Paul says that is spiritually catastrophic. And the consequence, he says, is we are adrift from a pure, single-minded devotion to Christ. And so all of us have to locate ourselves in that and say, where have the voices in my life been particularly strong in relationship to God's Word? Where, where is that for you? Where is that for me? Now, to help us get there okay, and apply this, 
for the last point, it's, it's, I think it's the most important thing this text has to say, and it talks about the dynamics of deception. Because we're, we're standing here today 2,000 years later, and we're saying, Pastor Paul, how could this happen? This is so clear. God's Word is so clear about these things. Paul's teaching was so clear. How could they have been so caught up in the, in, in, in the wrapping, in the outward appearance that they were rejecting the true gospel? How could that happen? How could they be so deceived about optics and appearances? How, does, how has that happened? And I think that in order to answer that question, we have to be able to answer that question, in order to have this text really speak into our own hearts and lives. And we want to start by saying this. We do know the source of all deceptions is whom? It's Satan. Look in verse 3. He said, I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Okay. Now, Paul says something else, though, about Satan. Paul doesn't just say that Satan is the source of all deception. Paul also tells us how it is that Satan deceives them and how it is that he deceives you and me. Okay, jump down to verse 14. He talks about the false apostles are deceitful, they're disguising themselves, but make no mistake, They're just servants. They're just servants. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This this word disguise means to transform, to change the outward appearance. And and we have to be really cognizant of, of, of something here, folks. You know, false teaching, false teachers do not come with a warning label. Or else, we would be able to immediately recognize them and deal with them. And it's the same thing with the church in Corinth. Okay? Satan, one of, and, and if you read the screw tape letters, Pastor Dave quotes screw tape letters a lot. One of Satan's chief instruments of deception in our life is he, he takes a good thing, a thing that's really good, a thing that's really right. And he says, you know, this thing that's good that you desire, well, now I'm going to deceive you into thinking that this is the ultimate thing. This is the important thing. This is the driving thing. This is the greatest thing that you could ever wrap your heart and mind around. Guys, God has given us great things to enjoy. Money sexuality, his creation, family, marriage. I could tick all of them off for you. But Satan's great, great work of deception in our lives, and it's what's happened to the church in Corinth, is, 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 is just being oh so sly and subtle and saying, you know, those things that you desire that are important, that are good, those are now the most important things in your life. And they are going to set the trajectory for everything else that you do. See, when, when Satan came to Eve, what was he talking to her about? He was talking about life and death. He was talking about meaning and purpose and choice 
and autonomy, all good things. But for Eve, because they became the ultimate thing, she was deceived and she fell. And guys, I think one of Satan's greatest instruments of deception is to speak loudly and persuasively to us at precisely those points where the cultural influence is the heaviest. If we think about Corinth, and it's so easy now to look back and say, oh, they were so deceived. Guys, cultural air, it's what we breathe and we marinate in all the time. That's why, we, you know, we, we, we talk about this a lot, but it, it bears repeating. Guys, pray for our Christian leaders and brothers and sisters who live on the West Coast. They live on the East Coast in New York and Seattle and San Francisco, and they are so tempted, okay, because the social and cultural pressures are so strong to capitulate on sexuality and gender roles and the uniqueness of Christ and abortion and same-sex marriage, and all those are, are serious things. But Satan says, you know, because all those, all those issues in and of themselves, the desire to be loved, the desire to be married, the desire to be unique, the desire to make choices, all those are good things. But when Satan comes along and deceives and says, these are ultimate, these are ultimate. Guys, it's spiritually catastrophic. So, how, how does this apply, this principle, to conservative Christians living in the Southeast? Okay? Because obviously, I do believe that all of us, myself included, all of us culturally have, or theologically, biblically, have blind spots. Okay? There's going to be things I truly believe. I, I believe this about abortion. I believe it may not be in our lifetime. I believe there'll be a time we look back on this and say, how were we so deceived? How were so many Christians deceived? It is so clear. What are those things for us? Okay, that's what we want to end on. Got a quote here for you. When it comes to deception, I want you to think about this. This is from David Wells. He says this. That worldliness or deception is that system of values which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Does that make sense? And all of us have this sort of swimming around in us. Things that, because of the nature of sin, it deceives, things seem really plausible. It gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong. It makes what's wrong seem normal. It makes righteousness seem strange, right? And so, can can I poke and prod just for one minute? Is that allowed? Mike, as an elder, is that allowed? He said yes. So it's okay. Okay, so I'm poking and prodding. I want to just, and again, I just want to, I want to just toss this at us because I want us as conservative middle-class Christians living in the Southeast to be able to situate in our text and have us have it speak to our own blind spots and deceptions. Okay, now, and as I say this, I feel a little bit like Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Ever see that, this movie? Okay, so, so they're going in, 
They're getting ready to do the bust on Al Capone's illegal alcohol. And where, where were they doing all this? They were doing it in the federal building the post, where the post office was, right? And, 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 and Kevin Costner asked Sean Connery, and Sean Connery is just awesome in whatever he does. Is he not? Okay. Just wanted to throw that in. You know, why, why are we here? And, and Sean Connery said something interesting. He said, you know, the problem is not knowing where the alcohol is, okay? The problem is having the courage to go in and do something about it, okay? And, here, and here's his quote. He says this. He says, if you walk through this door, because you're walking into a world of trouble, there's no turning back, okay? Do you understand? Okay? And there was no turning back. Because the door I want to walk through just for the last couple minutes, the time that we have, is the door called family, can we do that? Can we talk about family just for a second? You know, most of us guys can agree on the biblical priority of the family. The family is to be a chief building block of society and culture. Guys, the family is one of the two chief institutions that the scriptures speak most directly and clearly to next to the community of God and the local church and its governance, okay? We know that the family is one of the chief instruments for raising up, training, and sending out future worshipers of God. Okay? Deuteronomy 6 places that responsibility squarely in the family. However, I think we often fail to grapple with a fundamental biblical theological reality. I think it's a blind spot okay, for us. And that's the job, by the way, of the pulpit, the pastor, and the Word to bring these things to us so that we can consider them before God together. And here's the theological reality I don't think we often wrestle with. Guys, did you know that the biological family, just like marriage, is temporary? It's temporary. You know, Jesus says in heaven they'll neither be given or taken in marriage because we won't need marriage in heaven. Marriage is given in this life to give us a picture of Christ and the church. And when we're in heaven to see Jesus face to face, we won't need marriage anymore. Because what is the fundamental theological reason God has given us the family? He's given us the biological family to point to an even greater eternal reality. You know what that is? It's the family of God. It's the family of God. See, one day when we are at the wedding feast of the Lamb, that bl- the blood that unites us will not be the biological blood. What, whose blood will unite us? The blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? The blood of the Savior. And if we don't understand that, that our heart in these things should not be, how do I focus on my family? The question is, how do I focus my family? How do I, how do I point my family to its God-ordained means and purpose? You see how this happens? Because, guys, the family's good. The family is right, okay? The, 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 the family is a chief building block and building stone. But when we, when we make the family the central, governing, controlling reality it will never do for us what we want it to do for us. See, we put all of our hope in the family, and what happens? Guys, your family will disappoint. My family will disappoint. 
because it's being asked to bear a weight and a freight it was never designed to do. And when the family becomes an idol, and can I use that word? Can I use that word? When the family becomes an idol, just remember, idols always disappoint. Let me just say this on a practical level. Because I think the greatest gift you can give your marriage, one, one of the greatest gifts you can give your marriage, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your biological family is a vision for the people of God, his bride, his church. What we have here is eternal. You know that? What unites us is our common bond in Jesus Christ, parents, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is this body of believers or a body of believers because they cannot have a relationship with Christ that's effectual and powerful and missional apart from the community of God. And this has all sorts of implications. And you have to contextualize this in the context of your life. It has implications for where you send your kids to school, what college they go to, your family priorities, your travel sports teams, your leisure and recreation, all that's for another time, okay? Um, but today, I would just have you consider, does God's word hold sway? Does God's, does God's word, okay, what voices am I listening to as I set the priorities and the trajectories of my life and my family and my schedule and my resources? Does it have the family of God in view? Because remember, a chief deception of Satan is that he deceives us into making a good thing the ultimate thing. And let's be honest, this is true for all of every single one of us in here. Every single one of us in here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to locate ourselves and to say, God, I've been led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it has to do with your family. Maybe it has to do with your marriage or your children or your character. Your into- I, I, don't, I don't know what that would be. But fundamentally, you need to know, and, and this is the reason we close every service by coming to the table. It's never the ultimate reality today for you is not how faithful you've been. It's not how unadulterated you've been. Not how untethered you've been. Not by how much you've been led astray. That's not that those things are important, but the greatest reality today is that Jesus Christ died for you. (laughs) That Jesus Christ died for like unfaithful, adulterated, promiscuous sinners, if I can use that word. That's the greatest reality. Now, we don't come saying, God, we're going to do better. We come saying, Jesus, you have done for us. You laid your life down for like these people in Corinth and like these progressives on the West Coast who seem so blinded and for for us who are struggling with our own sin and deception as well. Because this table offers hope for all of us wherever we're located in this passage. So I'm going to ask us to do something. As our, as our leaders come forward and prepare to serve our table, I'm just going to ask you, 
just to engage in quiet, silent response to the Lord and say, Lord, where have the voices been inordinate and out of balance? What voices have I been listening to? Where have I been led astray? And Lord, and, and I just pray that God will give you the courage to confess those things and you bring them into the light. And as you do, you will find mercy and grace in your time of need. That Jesus will meet you there because he's good and he's gracious. So go before the Lord and confess these things silently to him.